0: I definitely agree that what brought you here is not what's going to take you to the ultimate goal. And we we stated a long time ago that our ultimate goal at Vidant Health is zero events of preventable harm and exceptional experiences for every patient we serve. So having the true north in front of you at all times is a great way to to, to build the will to continue to improve um, we believe that one of the next, you know, things that we are are heavily focused on is decreasing unnecessary variation, and I think that's something probably a lot of the listeners out there are know about and, and want to emphasize as well.
1: Welcome to Second Opinions, a Healthstream podcast. I'm your host, Brad Weeks. Join me as I talk to some of the preeminent thought leaders and experts working in healthcare today. In these candid interviews, we're going to hear some alternative views. We're definitely going to challenge conventional wisdom, and we're going to get a little personal. But we are looking for second opinions. Join us. Dr. Joan Nguyen is the Chief Quality Officer and President of Vidant Home Health and Hospice. Dr. Nguyen was recently named one of the top 50 experts in the country who are leading the field of patient safety. She's been with Viden Health in Greenville, North Carolina, since 1990. In 2007, Dr. Nguyen assumed executive leadership for the System Quality Division and was promoted to Chief Quality and Patient Safety Officer. Under Dr. Nguyen's leadership, Viden earned the Joint Commissions and National Quality Foundation's John M. Eisenberg Patient Safety and Quality Award in two thousand and thirteen. So Joan, thank you for being here. Tell us about your background and how you came to be named one of the top patient safety experts in the country.
0: I am a nurse, like as you said, and I've been a nurse for i guess thirty some years now. That's hard to believe. And a um about ten years ago actually, ten or twelve years ago, we and our organization were going to create our first system quality office. So we had been a growing health system since nineteen ninety eight and in about two thousand five our then CEO decided, you know, we really need to have some more corporate oversight for the quality and safety function. And at that time, a um, nurse who was my mentor was the first chief quality officer. And she uh, asked me if I wanted to come and help her get this new division started at the corporate level. And while I really didn't have a background in in patient safety and quality, I had been a nurse and in various leadership positions in nursing. I had been a clinical specialist um, and had led a division at the hospital. And it just seemed like a great opportunity to work with somebody that I really respected and to really try to start up a new function at our system level. And so I went to work for her in 2005. And since then, it's really been kind of a journey of development. Not only for our health system, but also for myself, and just understanding and learning about quality and safety. And so, when I received the recognition as the top, one of the top patient safety experts, it was definitely a, a surprise and an honor. Um, and really, I think speaks more to our team and the work that we've done here more than to me as an individual. Um, but just that we have put together and really transformed our health system using some of the best practices in patient safety and quality over the last 10 or 12 years.
1: You've written about the quality transformation at Vidant in the Joint Commission's journal on quality and patient safety. Can you give our listeners a brief overview of the patient safety event that was pivotal in causing your board and your executives to place an intentional focus on patient safety?
0: We um, had an event that was a blood transfusion event in our hospital. Uh, our, our main academic medical center, we're an eight hospital health system. And this event did occur at the big hospital, almost a thousand beds. And it was an e- event where we really saw that um, that drift away from what we know to be best practice can have serious um, implications for patient care. And so uh, we had staff who were not checking blood at the bedside using the two patient identifiers, uh, and instead they were checking the blood with each other at the nurse's station and not against the um, patient's identification at the bedside. So that resulted in a patient receiving the wrong uh, unit of blood and did result in, um, you know, a blood transfusion reaction. And the patient eventually, the patient was very sick to begin with, but eventually did die in our hospital. And we believe that the error and the event contributed to that patient's death.
1: Now, one of your early strategies was to implement a transparency plan. Let's talk about how to operationalize that. So this transparency plan that you've described is where you post harmful event data on a public facing website, which is probably a sort of a novel concept to a lot of our listeners. Can you tell us more about that?
0: We started um again, I said like ten or twelve years ago, and one of the things that we knew that we needed to do was to make apparent our uh, both the process measures, like how are we doing and implementing these best practices like hand hygiene or uh, med reconciliation? How are we doing with those those processes? and then what are the outcomes? Do we have fewer infections because we're doing really good with hand hygiene? Um, that those, those were the two types of measures that we wanted to be able to understand and report, the process measures and the outcome measures. And so we wanted to make very clear and apparent throughout our health system. And we always say kind of from the bedside to the boardroom, we wanted to share transparently those outcomes and process measures. And in, in learning more about transparency and reading some of the literature, you know, we found that there were organizations who were taking it to a whole a whole other level and making it very easy for consumers, for their communities, for patients and families to gain access to that information by using their public facing website to post information. So we went through a very lengthy process of discovery of what are people doing across the country, what's happening in our state of North Carolina, what are the laws that govern. Um, some of these things in our state and nationally. We worked with our risk management and legal counsel to be sure that we weren't doing anything that was going to put the organization at untoward risk. We uh, worked with our board and our governing body. They really led the way because this was a policy decision that we had to make as an organization that we were going to make this information much more available to our public and our consumers. And we laid out a timeline Ah, uh, for how and when we would make this information available, again from the bedside to the to the boardroom and and beyond to our public. So we we walked through, you know, a process which obviously included our information systems colleagues, as I said before, our legal and risk management, our medical staff, and then our uh, patients and families. And we definitely found that when we became more transparent there was the uh, understanding in our organization of wow you know this hospital really has this issue figured out because they're knocking it out of the park and doing really well what can we learn from them and then spread across the health system so so there was that collaboration and collegial learning and then of course as as with anything with high performing people in organizations, there's that friendly competition of, hey, how, you know, they're doing better than we are, and we want to be the number one hospital in our system, and we want to be having the best results. So I think both of those things, the collaboration and the friendly competition to be the best, really served us well in becoming more systematized in how we looked at our quality and safety outcomes and how we implemented those best practices kind of across the board.
1: This was really a culture change. And I think that one would assume that to be transparent and to do the things that you're describing, you have to have a highly accountable culture, but it doesn't just happen. You have to be methodical about it. You have to be structured as you described. So a couple questions on that. One, does Viden utilize any particular accountability structure, whether it's something like just culture or maybe something around incident decision trees? So that's the first question. The second question is, What advice would you give to organizations who are looking to establish a similar type of culture change to be more transparent, to be more accountable?
0: We do use just culture, and we started that work, wow, not right at the very beginning of our journey, but um, maybe after a year or two in, we realized we needed to change the way we were approaching um, the accountability piece. And so we did begin to kind of, again, talk about methodical. We, we piloted at two organizations using just culture uh, algorithms in our decision-making around accountability and the human part of when these errors and mistakes happen. And then we learned from those pilots and then we expanded throughout our health system. And I think we wrapped up all of that probably in 2012. So um, It is something that is is imperative because as you begin being more transparent about events and outcomes that are happening in your organization, there is that human element. And as I said in the very first event that I described, we had drift from what we thought were the expectations. And it was not just an individual person, but it had become accepted practice on that unit, that drift had become normalized and it was just the way they did things. So it really uh, begs you to look beyond individual performance to the unit itself and the leadership and the team and, of course, the entire organization in the end. So what do we need to do differently so that we don't have that drift from, from these best practices? And I think that. Uh, just culture algorithms or other tools, as you mentioned, help make sure that you do that, you approach those human elements consistently. Uh, And then, of course, you have to look at what are your policies and and your HR um, policies and procedures around those kinds of things and uh, revising all of those to make them line up with more of a just culture approach. So it's not that there's no accountability on the part of the individual, you know, but but there is that idea of human mistake or at-risk behavior. And then there's just the egregious uh, behavior that, um, you know, things that people, uh, a bad apple person could do something that's just egregious. And that is Uh, something that's not tolerated. But usually, you know, 99% of the time, it's either an honest mistake or it's at-risk behavior that has not been identified and coached. And one of the things that was extremely helpful to us in our journey has been really the board-level support for the work. And we engaged our board early on and provided education for them In, you know, what is patient safety? How do you measure quality in hospitals? We had national speakers come and do retreats with our board. We provided quarterly education sessions about our own methods and tools and how to read our quality scorecard and what kinds of questions can board members ask about performance and outcomes. So I think engaging your board, uh, the governing body has a key role in quality and safety. And as they become more adept at understanding and asking questions about quality and safety, uh, I think you, you find that it really does spur and build the will to improve in the organization. Another thing that we did that was really transformational was uh, that patient family advisor role and having patients and families at, at all levels of the organization involved in improvement teams, involved in sharing their stories or their experiences of care. Uh, we had a patient come for the first time to present and share their story of care with our board in 2010. And, you know, I, you could have heard a pin drop in the room because this was an individual person who literally said to our board quality committee, you know that scorecard you guys see every month? Well, that that line on there that says ventilator-associated pneumonia's." that was me. I was one of those numbers. So you could really, it really put a face to the numbers and made it much more personal, the impact of uh, what these infections or harm events have on real people, who for us in a rural Eastern North Carolina, these are our friends and neighbors, our community members, you know, people that we go to church with or or are in our children's school. So we we know these people, they they are us, so to speak. And um, so having that face, on the numbers, again, is another way of being transparent and another way of really building the will to improve.
1: You all at Vidant have had a long history of working with patients and families as advi- as advisors, and that's not a new concept, obviously. But I'm curious, what was the catalyst for you in using patients and their families to tell their stories that impacted not just the board and the executive team but the entire organization? What really started that process for you?
0: It's really interesting because what started it was a story, and it was a story from a staff member whose family member, her brother, her younger brother, had been a patient in our hospital, and she shared the story with our senior team, and her story was about her brother, who was the victim of a home invasion and a shooting. He was a college student and um he ended up in our ICU and it was a surgical ICU and he was um this individual his sister who was a occupational therapist talked about how limiting our visitation was and ended her story um by telling us that her brother who had who had been very sick from these gunshot wounds died alone because of our restrictive visitation policies in our intensive care unit. So again, that was a, you know, extremely emotional and um, I guess pivotal time in our organization because it was one of our own sharing how she and her family had been so gravely impacted by um, our policies that were not patient-centered and so when that happened the all the senior leadership team really said, you know what? We're not going to be this organization. We're going to be a different organization. And one of the ways to do that is to engage patients and families in the work to have, you know, an advisory role for patients and families and we we began, you know, really putting the uh, policies in place that would make us more patient-centered. So we have now what we call a family presence policy. It's not called visitation because these aren't visitors; they're family members for the most part. So the, the, that was one of the first things that we went after was the family presence policy, and then also a real and true formal role for a patient advisor program with a job description and an uh, or interview and orientation. And we say that our patient advisors go through the same onboarding as our employees, except they don't sign up to get direct deposit because we don't pay them. Um, so they they really are an integral part of our organization and have been for, you know, again, going on like 10 years and truly transformational for us. Because when you have a patient on an improvement team that's talking about uh, surgical site infection, for example, and what do we do with patients who have diabetes and come in with an elevated blood sugar? And do we cancel the surgery? Do we reschedule? Is that really what patients and families want? And you have surgeons in the room when they hear the patient advisor say, well, wait a minute, if that was me and that elevated blood sugar meant I had a more significant chance of getting a post-op infection, I'd want you to change the surgery and reschedule it until my body was at its optimal to, um, you know, have a successful procedure. So when you hear from the actual people themselves, the patients and families, it just changes the conversation. And um, it has really been a significant factor for us in our improvement work.
1: The Joint Commission has said that leaders must create a a culture of safety. So back on this topic of of culture again, how important that is. I want to get your perspective as an expert in this field, for how you would define a safety culture. How would you define that for what it means in a healthcare organization?
0: So I think that safety culture is really the sum total of everything we do and say in support of safety in the environment. Um, and the Joint Commission's new Sentinel event alert um, that was just um, published again in in March highlights the importance of leadership in the safety culture, and I think if your leaders, your senior leaders, are making safety a priority, that goes a long way into um, creating the culture that you want. So um, that that leadership role clarity about their importance and their role in patient safety. Um, we have a system-wide patient safety committee that meets each month, and we, we review performance on our quality measures. We review events that have happened and root cause analyses and actions to prevent recurrence of events, and our CEO of our you know health system, our eight hospital health system with 90 ambulatory physician practices and home health and hospice and wellness centers and um, all of those components he says it's his favorite meeting of the month and he would never miss that meeting. So having our CEO visible in the room, engaged in discussing events and preventive actions really demonstrates to the whole organization the importance of the work. Uh, and again, when you when you talk about leadership, it really is about what leaders put their time into and for our CEO to put his time into this monthly meeting and into the reviews of the events really shows that it is important to him. And I think we all know the saying, what's important to my boss is important to me. And so it certainly shows the organization that this is a focus and a, and something that we all need to have as a number one priority.
1: Executive involvement and attention is certainly what sounds like a, a must-have for this safety culture. What are some other must-haves or critical factors that you've seen have to be in place to establish and sustain this type of a culture?
0: Well, I think we talked about transparency of the data, for sure, is something that has to be, is a is a critical must-have. Uh, leadership attention, um, knowing what we're measuring, and then, again, sharing that transparently. And then having the ideas. what? Well, how are we going to improve and where do we get the ideas from? Well, one of the key places you get the ideas from is the front line. And so they often know what are the problems or what's the next safety event that may happen uh, and how to prevent it or ideas about how to prevent it. So I think getting the ideas from the front line and the other place we look for ideas is from high performing organizations that are doing better than we are. And what are they doing differently? What do they know that we don't know? What learnings do they have that we can that we can learn from? You know, I find that organizations across the country really don't compete on patient safety. Uh, and they're very willing to share their learnings and their strategies and their best practices with colleagues. So we always reach out when we find an organization that we think um, is, is one that we can learn from. So I would say um, kind of just to recap, the attention of leaders, the transparent reporting of the data, uh, the ideas to improve and where to get those from, and then that ongoing drumbeat of the improvement work and keeping it top of mind and, in whatever ways uh, work for your organization. We produce a monthly quality scorecard that uh shows on one piece of paper uh, for each organization, and then we have a roll-up for the system. How are we doing on those quality and safety goals that we set at the beginning of the year? And keeping that um, in front of people, and when you're seeing that you're off track, addressing the variance and implementing the actions you need to get back on track.
1: I want to ask you about a a topic that that we would say is is certainly trending now, so to speak, and that's this notion of high reliability. Uh, Our leadership at HealthStream recently met with the Joint Commission, and they told us that that is their number one goal, to create cultures of high reliability. How can those of us in healthcare take a lesson from other industries that have been successful in maintaining these types of levels of safety and quality?
0: I think you're exactly right. I think out of industry learning is one of the best things that we can do in healthcare, and learning from um, naval aviation or nuclear power industry as examples, who are two types of organizations that are, you know, highly reliable, and um, the way that they do that is by embedding into daily operations uh, those. Hallmarks uh, of reliability. So, if you think about one of those being sensitivity to operations, which just means knowing what's really going on on the front line. Well, how do we do that? Uh, you know, in naval aviation, they have a um, a uh, method they use where they kind of walk the sh- walk the the deck, and they are all together walking across the deck of the sh- of the. Sh- aircraft carrier looking for anything that's out of the ordinary? Is there you know a a nut or or a screw that is on the deck that should not be? and where did it come from? and why you know is is that off of a plane that's missing this this equipment now? Um, so that's how they uh, embed that high reliability into their daily operation. And one of the things analogous to that that we do in um, in in our organization is we have what we call a daily safety huddle. And so that is a time when it's uh, at the hospital-wide level, and then it's also that daily same daily safety huddle is happening on each unit. And in that safety huddle, we're talking about what's anything unusual that happened over the last twenty-four hours. Uh, what did we What did we do about it? Is there anything unusual coming up? Do we have any patients on our unit today that have unusual procedures or equipment? You know, who's the sickest patient today? who's our newest nurse you know really creating that awareness of what is going on around us today so that we can set up for a safe day so i think the 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 idea of of being a highly reliable organization is using these principles of reliability that have been been researched and and are in the literature and really talk about embedding that those principles into your your daily work and how you kind of run your 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 company, your your healthcare uh, organization. So I would highly recommend that people read the Joint Commission's work on uh, reliability and also look at the book by Wyke and Sutcliffe, which um, is a, kind of a seminal work on reliability in organizations and is something that um, we have, have have certainly learned from and it's called Managing the Unexpected by Carl Wyke and Kathleen Sutcliffe. And it outlines five principles of reliability and ways that you can embed those principles into your daily work.
1: What are some other examples or tips that you can give our listeners, uh, maybe beyond safety huddles, for ways that you've seen are very effective and maybe efficient as well with engaging frontline staff in safety?
0: We have safety coaches in our organization, and those are frontline staff who have been either... You know, identify themselves or identified by managers who want to have an additional role in supporting and fostering safety on their units uh, or in their departments. Because it's not just clinical departments, of course. This is is across across our organization. And so, safety coaches is a role that we have where um, these individuals work in their departments to foster again the the principles of reliability and also foster the use of uh, tools and for error prevention. So we have uh, a group of tools that we call safety habits that are um, those um, habits that we want to ingrain in our staff that will help to uh, prevent human errors. So there are things like pay attention to detail, uh, think critically, critically. Uh, Hand off effectively using Sbar. So we have those safety habits and error prevention tools that the safety coaches uh, foster and teach on and coach on on their units. So that's one way that we engage the frontline more in safety. And then we also have safety catches where we are really trying to collect and catch it, catch people doing the right thing and preventing errors from reaching patients. So when we have safety catches, we post those on our intranet, uh, we share those in meetings, we recognize staff for their good safety catch. uh, And, um, you know, that's another way that we engage the frontline as well. So our patient safety committee Every hospital president, every entity president attends that monthly meeting. Now, they're not always in person. We have kind of the Skype webinar type of um, system that we use as well. So we have people in the room. We have people on the camera, on the screen. But every single hospital president, nurse exec, quality director, and we try to get all of our chiefs of staff there as well. Uh, In addition to, you know, as I said before, our system CEO, our system chief medical officer. So all of those people are in the room continuing to learn and drive to the improvements that we want in safety and quality.
1: I want to get your perspective on what you see are the most significant safety challenges that healthcare organizations are facing today. What do you think those are?
0: You know, I think one thing is the technology that we use in healthcare and and the big, you know, kind of elephant is the room is the electronic health record and the the goal, the whole reason for the EHR was to improve safety, but I think it also has that that possibility, that downside of making things more complex, of um, also making people very dependent on the computer to, to give us an alert or a reminder, and um, it, it can make us rely heavily on the technology to the point that we forget the most important instrument that we have is you know our two hands and our eyes and our ears um, and our senses that help us to assess patients and determine when they may be um, deteriorating or declining in their condition. So I think technology and the EHR is a huge challenge uh, with patient safety today. I think um, you know another thing is the um, cost pressures that we all face. And the need to have, you know, good throughput and short lengths of stay, and meanwhile patients are sicker and sicker that are in our hospitals, uh, so that certainly is a challenge. And again, having some of these underlying tools and methods that we use in safety, the huddles, the safety habits, those kinds of things become the way we do it around here, and can help address some of those some of those challenges. Um, I think the um, other, another, another challenge for us is just our consumers who are much um, smarter and more engaged and more aware of what they should be expecting. Uh, and that can be a challenge, but it can also really be a huge, um, I guess, a huge tool that we can use. And having patients who come into our settings much more knowledgeable uh, and having them help us, you know, giving them permission to remind us to wash our hands and to ask questions and to engage the team. And when something doesn't sound right, speak up, You know, really having them use some of those same safety habits that we we teach our staff to use.
1: What I've learned from you today is that what got you here won't take you there. Wherever there is, whatever that destination is, whether it's patient safety, whether it's high reliability, whether it's uh, some other sort of cultural transformation, it sounds like where you are today, you can learn from it, but, but you, you need to evolve. You need to change. You need to develop more. Um, if we can agree on that, then how must healthcare organizations' safety strategies change or evolve the most, in your opinion?
0: Wow. That's a great question. I definitely agree that what brought you here is not what's going to take you to the ultimate goal. And we we stated a long time ago that our ultimate goal at Vidant Health is zero events of preventable harm and exceptional experiences for every patient we serve. So having the true north in front of you at all times is a great way to to, to build the will to continue to improve um, we believe that one of the next you know, things that we are, are heavily focused on is decreasing unnecessary variation. And I think that's something probably a lot of the listeners out there are know about and, and want to emphasize as well. So in the beginning, I think you're really working on more of this low hanging, hanging fruit kind of idea around um, hand hygiene and, and some of those kinds of things as far as making sure you have enough hand hygiene dispensers, you know, in in your organization. Now we're into the real um, hard work of unnecessary variation, which can drive up cost and can cause a big variation in outcomes as well. So engaging our medical staff in the work to reduce unnecessary variation is something we're heavily focused on, which has a technology component because the, um, the, Electronic health record can help us with that. It can. We can embed protocols in the EHR that have orders with them that that help us do it the same. Uh, But we have to get our medical staff on board. I think in a in a totally different way to get to that next level of quality and safety.
1: Earlier, you shared the story that really uh, was the the factor and the catalyst that started this transformative journey at Vidant, the story of a patient's death in your facility. So I want to ask you a couple things more about that. Uh, in the many years that happened, the many years that have that has transpired since that event occurred, how have things changed the most at Vidant? And secondly, how have things changed the most for you just on a personal and professional level?
0: I think... We can say, well, are you a safer organization today than you were, you know, 10 years ago? And with a resounding and heartfelt absolutely yes is how I answer that question. And how do I know that? I know that because of the over, you know, 60% reduction we've had in hospital-acquired infections. I know that because of the tremendous number of safety catches that our staff uh, share uh, and input each day. I know that because of the tremendous response rates we get on our safety culture surveys that we do every other year. Um, and I know that because of the Joint Commission surveys that we pass with the lowest number of findings uh, you know, that we've ever had uh, when we had our, our last triennial survey. So there are many facts and figures I can point to that tell us we're in a much better place today than we were all those years ago. Um, but I think on a on a personal level, I know it because of the stories that I hear from staff and patients about the care that they receive and the compassion um, from our team. Uh, and I know it um, personally um, as I've as I've seen our approach to quality evolve. And things that um, you know we we didn't used to address that we address now in terms of some of that standardization and and variability that I mentioned before. And I, I also see our medical staff much more engaged with us in the quality work today than they were you know back in the beginning of our journey. So um, those are some of the ways I have seen our organization evolve over time. Uh, I think I think for me um, too it has been you know a journey and a and a learning always trying to look both within healthcare and outside of healthcare for ideas that can fuel our efforts. And I think when we do take the opportunity to to stop and look back on where we've been and where we are today, and we see those numbers going in the right direction, um, it really does fuel uh, our next um, you know great leap forward in the quality and safety work.
1: So I'm curious, you've been at this journey now for a while. What drives you now? What what gets you up in the morning and fires you up to keep going?
0: In in the end, I am a nurse, and it's all about patient care for me. Always has been, always I think will be. And what gets me fired up and what gets me going is that next um, safety event that's not going to happen because we did something better. That next infection we're going to prevent. That will mean somebody gets out of the hospital and home to their family quicker. Uh, so I really, really keep patients at the forefront of every decision that I make and try to embed that into the decision making uh, on our senior team, because I think that's one of the things clinicians bring to the table um, on the senior team is that deep um, connection to the patients and families that we serve. So for me, it's it still gets me jazzed up to think about improving patient care and, and making things better for the patients and families we serve.
1: That's awesome. Well, Joan, I can't thank you enough on behalf of everybody at HealthStream, all of our listeners. Uh, we all look up to you and we really appreciate you taking this time with us this morning, but also uh, we appreciate you for everything you do for healthcare because you're making it better.
0: Well, thank you so much that it's an honor to be asked to to speak and to think that I have something that that might help others. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity.
1: Thank you for listening. You can learn more about what we've talked about today by visiting our website at healthstream.com slash podcast. For more second opinions, follow us on Facebook and Twitter or subscribe on our website.